Isn't it great that we have a Father that we can run to, that you don't have to hide? We're gonna talk about that this morning anymore. This is a place for broken people. God loves broken people. So let me read our text this morning, Mark chapter one, verses, I'm just gonna read verses 12 to 13, but hear this, this is God's word. At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and the angels ended him. This morning is good news for broken people. You can be seated and receive that word. It's a great article a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times and it was, and it said this, this the headline said, Elmo asked an innocuous question. I didn't know that Elmo had a Twitter account, um, an X account, and he tweeted this. He said, Elmo is just checking in. How's everybody doing? Not, not, um, the, the, sub, the subtitle said, Elmo, uh, Elmo was not expecting to open up a yawning chasm of despair. Apparently, we're not doing well. Uh, there were probably, I think, a, uh, it was a huge number of responses. And here's a couple of the, the replies that came back. And Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. Anybody here depressed and broke? No, they're not going to get a whole lot of amens out of that one. <laughs> Elmo, uh, one said, Elmo, each day, uh, the abyss we stare into grows a unique horror. So, you know, about a year ago, we, we put a team together, about 10 people, and we began working with a consultant looking at our mission, our new mission, which is the new mission is encountering Jesus together. And then we began to develop a set of values. So this series, Broken, is really on our first value. And the first value that we came up with is, is just simply this, is that we are all broken. Everyone's broken. Like, we are all broken. Now, values, values are supposed to be felt. Most businesses will post their values all over, but the reality is, is like a value is something you feel when you go into a, a business or in a church. And so that like, what does it feel like? What would a church, what would it feel like to be a part of a church that's for broken people? So there's five things I wanna say to you from this story, the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I think that'll be sobering. Um, I'm gonna try to be as pastoral as I can hopeful, okay? So here's the first one. A broken church feels welcoming to sinners. It feels welcoming to sinners. Let me jump back in the text, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 9 to 15 really is the whole text that we're looking at this morning. In verse 9, it says that Jesus came to to John, and it says he was baptized in the Jordan. You'll remember a few weeks back, I actually preached on the baptism of Jesus, and John tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. He's like, why are you, the Son of God, coming into these sinners' waters? But Jesus insists, he's like, this is God's work, says Matthew 3, is that I come, and one translation says, fulfill all righteousness, but really, I'm putting to right everything that's been wrong through all the centuries right now. Jesus as the Son is sent by the Father into the world to welcome sinners back to God. Don't miss that. To back to God. So a church, 
like living word that takes Jesus seriously, first of all, has to take sin seriously. Jesus is in the waters with the sinners, right? But we have to take sin seriously and we have to do it. We have to do it in a way that welcomes sinners because it's easy to take sin seriously in a way that drives sinners away. But if we're gonna do it the way that Jesus did it, it will draw sinners to us. Matthew 9, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus to his disciples and they say this, why does your teacher eat with trash? That's modern translation. Tax collectors and sinners. And on hearing this, Jesus said back, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I've come not to call the sinners. Are we a church, is living word a church that welcomes sinners? We say yes, but can we really lean into that and live that, that this is a place where we welcome sinners like me, like you, and like other people in this community that welcome. So here's the second thing. What would it feel like to be a church that's for broken people? It would feel really honest. We would be really honest about ourselves and about our struggles. Verse 12 of chapter one in Mark, uh, the spirit immediately, here's something interesting. There's that word immediately again. Drives Jesus, sends Jesus out into the wilderness. Don't miss this. The baptism happens and immediately, right after the baptism, right after God pronounces, this is my son that I love, listen to him. And immediately the spirit drives him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for being tempted by Satan. Now there's a lot of history about the, the wilderness. After the, in the Old Testament, long before Jesus had come, God had rescued his people from Pharaoh in Egypt. He brought them out. You read that in the Exodus stories. He brought them out. They passed through the Red Sea where God rescued them. And then they get in the wilderness. And the wilderness where Jesus now is, right, where he's being tempted, the history behind that is that God's people, it was a place of terrible rebellion and failure. They constantly complained in the wilderness. They complained about food. They complained about water. Like I've been complaining about not eating candy all week, Pastor Kendall. So, you know, you said, you said the other night in that great word that you brought, you said, we fast and we fail. I've complained a lot this week about not having my beloved candy. Um, that sounds terrible. But they complained about food, they complained about water, they complained about and just how terrible it was. And it ultimately culminates in numbers. In numbers, they land on the spot where they say, you know what? It'd just be better if we went back to Egypt to go back under Pharaoh. Listen to what they're saying. They're saying like, it's better to be under Pharaoh in Egypt than it is with God in the wilderness. That's like our story. I see myself all over the wilderness narratives, right? And, you, and when we should too. And Jesus though, Jesus is sent into the wilderness and there the word in Mark is that he is tried. It's actually the word for trial, that he's put to the t 40 days by Satan, constantly tempted. He's tempted to sin. Now hear this, years ago I had a, I had a, a guy that was in a church with me and, and I, we were talking, he was struggling with a sin and, he's, and he was really wrestling with this and I was telling him this story and how 
and those, and he said to me, he said, he said, man, that, that's so good. That's so awesome. Jesus is just a screw up like me. I said, whoa, I said, no, the only screw up is me. Like apparently my communication skills because, <laughs> because this is not, Jesus did not go fail in the wilderness. No, he was tempted 40 days. He was put to the trial and Jesus obeyed the father, but it was a fight. He was put into the fire and he fought and he was tempted there. Jesus is no screw up. Jesus shows us is that he knows what it's like to be human. He's fully human. And yet, because he's also fully God, something that early church wrestled with, he's both fully human and he's fully God. He's able to endure and stand up to that test. So a broken church, a church that's for broken people, really raw and honest about the struggle that each of us have. First John chapter 1 9 and 10 says this, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is this a church where it's safe to be honest about your struggles? How safe, you might ask? <laughs> a little safe or a lot safe? Years ago, I had a guy, and I had to tell all these old church stories. Her stories, you'd probably figure out who it is. So let me tell some old church stories. Years ago, I had a guy who was relatively new to church when I was pastoring, and he, he would come to me, and this guy was, he had come out of a really rough situation, and he would come to me and he'd say, Pastor, it's like I had a rough weekend. And I'd say, well, what? tell me about it, what's going on. It's, it's good, I'm glad you're here. And, and he would say, well, I spent all my money on cocaine. That's pretty honest, right? I think he didn't take the class that says things you aren't supposed to tell your pastor, right? <laughs> um, but I love that. I was able to be there. And you know what? He knew, that, he knew that God loved him. I think he really believed that I loved him as well. And he, and he was there. And thank God that he was there. And he was wrestling with that. And he was honest about it. I mean, can you imagine, can you even imagine what it would be like to be able to be that honest about your struggles? Are like way too clean to do that. But can you imagine that? And I'll tell you, good news, like that guy's still following Jesus today. today. Amen? Amen. Amen. We, living word, we have to be a church that's going to let people come here and be honest about the struggles that each of us have because all of us are struggling somehow. Here's the third thing. We are a church for broken people. It would feel like we're patiently supportive. Get both of those words, patiently supportive. Now, verse 13, going back to Mark chapter one, it says that Jesus was with the wild animals. I debated on trying to figure out what that's all about. I have no idea what that's about. I don't know. I asked Pastor Kendall last service to go figure it out for me and tell me like, what is with the wild animals? It just sounds scary. But the wild animals are there with him in the, in the wilderness. There's, there's some meaning. I just. And the angels were ministering to him. That I don't want you to miss. The angels, it actually, the in the Greek is the same word used for deacons, who are those great helpers in the church, those great servants. The angels are ministering to him. They're attending to Jesus. The word has this sense of relief that they're bringing relief to him. Here's what I found so encouraging about this aspect of, of, of the world. 
is that I think Jesus has pushed human flesh to its utter limits, to the point where it's just about to break, like it feels like it's just about to break. He's gone as far as he can, and at the end of 40 days, like the angels have to come and minister to Jesus. Listen to what Hebrews chapter four says about this. Have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Folks, please hear me this morning. Somebody who's here who's struggling, you have a high priest in heaven in Jesus Christ who understands and empathizes with your weakness. Do you believe that? Do I believe that Jesus Christ empathizes, knows what it's like to be tempted, know what it's like, what's it, what it's like to be stretched to the limit, but it says we've been, one had been tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin. He didn't sin. I had a pastor friend years ago who told me that I was a Pharisee because I believed that And I was a little shocked by hearing that. I knew that people believed this. I didn't know that I was in a relationship with somebody who actually believed, and this is not, no one here in York and no one that you, any of you would know, okay? Just to be clear. So you're like, who, what church is that? Um, <laughs> not here in York, calm down. <clears throat> Pharisee. He knows what it's like to struggle and, and to face like human weakness, but he, he didn't sin. And, and yet he welcomes us. He supports us. He's patient with us. Listen, listen here. We have to be a church in our mission, encountering Jesus together, encountering Jesus together. No one, no one should be fighting their fight alone. No one. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his little book, Life Together. It's a great book. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. Isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous his isolation. We shouldn't be going it alone. Instead, like what Hebrews says, like as long as it's called to today, encourage one another so that you won't be hardened by sins. Like we need each other. We need to be able to be honest with each other. We need to be patient with each other and supportive. How many of you, and I'll start by raising my hand as like the first to confess. How many of you have a sin or pattern of sin that what the Bible calls a besetting sin? Something that you've struggled with and it doesn't seem like it wants to go away. How many of you would be bold enough to raise your hands and do that? right? Yeah, I'm going to leave my hand up there um, because that's me, right? And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? You can put your hands down now. We'll find you out. <laughs> now I dinner sour. Aren't you glad that the scripture says that every morning there's new mercy? That every day God looks at you and says, that's my son. I love, I love that one. And there's mercy, there's grace, there's my love for you. Awesome that we have a father who's so patient and so supportive. And don't we want to be a church like that? You know, sometimes we, we look at issues like, like we're debating in our society and like, look, this is a place, this is a hospital for sinners. So if you're struggling, like this is a place where you can be patient, where we'll be supportive. We will help you find God's new mercies. Now here's the fourth point. What would it feel like to be a church for broken people? This place would be endlessly messy. It will never be clean. If you want this place to be clean, good luck. It's gonna be endlessly messy. 
Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, believe the good news. Now you're thinking, how are you gonna get, how are you gonna get endlessly messy out of repent? Well, Martin Luther, right, that great 16th century uh, pastor, when he went in the, the, the German door that started, they nailed the 95 theses onto the door of the church of Wittenberg, and it said this, the number one, the, the first thesis was when the Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that all of life should be one of repentance. You know, as I get older, I'm realizing, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing. I think I, years ago, I used to believe that as you get older, you sin less. That's actually untrue. Young people, as you get older, I think God actually pulls the layers back and shows you like, oh my gosh, like I am way more messy than I understood. But I'm, I'm learning to repent and to repent faster and quicker. And that's what all, that's why this church will be an endless, it's because all of us, including your pastors and your pastors here, like are living these messy lives of, of needing the grace of God. I had a church member years ago come to me and he was not, I've, this, uh, this not a very nice person. I won't this person was not a very nice friend. I'm not being judgmental. This person would say terrible things to me about other people. And he said to me, he said, when he started coming to the church, he said, I like this church because it's a nice class of people. And I, I just thought, oh my gosh, like what, what if, if you think this is a nice class of people. So C.S. Lewis, in his, in his little book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter called Nice People or New Men. Nice people or new men. And C.S. Lewis is responding to a criticism from atheists. And he says, if, Christian, if Christianity is really true, wouldn't than non-Christians? You might think like that's a valid, it is a valid question, that's an interesting question. But C.S. Lewis says it's kind of wrong-headed for a couple reasons. One, it assumes that God's goal is to make us socially nice instead of making us new. Yeah, look, look I would much rather live in a society nice to each other. It's not been that fun the last few years like us being terrible to each other, has it? I would be great if people would be nicer to each other. But the, Jesus didn't go to the cross to make us socially nice. He, he went to the cross and died for our sins to make us new, new people. So Lewis says, like when you're looking at people, you can't look at a person nicer than that one because the reality is you're gonna look at some people, specifically people who knew Jesus, and you're gonna say, they were really terrible people and now they're a little better. They're new. He's making them new. We're in repair. What was their state like before new management took over? Bad. It was bad. Lewis says this. He says, we shouldn't be surprised if we find among Christians some people who are still nasty. Oh, you don't like that quote. We shouldn't be surprised. But that's exactly what people objected to Jesus in his ministry when he said, such awful people, tax collectors and sinners. Don't mistake being socially nice as a form of godliness. Lewis says, he goes on to say, he's like, sometimes we think like our social niceness is a gift to God. But Lewis all kinds of privileges and things that we have in life that make some of us nicer than others. The reality is like probably based on the kind of parents you had, the trauma you experienced as a child, the, 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 the poverty that you live in, like social niceness is not necessarily godliness. So Lewis says, Lewis says, God, God, 
new people. We think it's being nice is, God's, is our gift to God, but the reality is it's God's gift to us. And then we end up harshly judging people who don't fit our categories of socially nice. Let me tell you a story from, from a great author, Connor, Flannery Connor, early 20th century. She, uh, white Christian woman. She was Roman Catholic. She lived in Savannah, Georgia, and she, she, her stories are hard to read. They're penetrating and dark, and I can't even like fully quote them to you. I'm going to quote some of it. Okay, she tells a story. Christian woman. Um, her name is Mrs. Ruby Turpin, and this is from the story called Revelation. Ruby Turpin shows up with her husband Claude in a medical office, in a doctor's office, and it's and it's crammed, and there's all kinds of sick people there, and there are people that Ruby Turpin is a landowner. She and her husband own a hog farm, and uh, they have chickens and hogs, and and they're clearly like high, a higher class in that time. And she's surrounded by people, specifically, there's a couple groups racially, there's a group that she despises, and there's a group of what she calls white trash that she really can't stand. It's a waiting room, and a little boy that she thinks is white trash is taking a seat, and she can't sit down, and she's perturbed by it. She has this whole, Ruby Turpin has this whole judgmental kind of social construct, layers of people that she thinks are the worst and the best, okay? So her worst are obviously racial classes that she can't, white trash, and then as you move up the spectrum a little bit, you get to homeowners, and then you get to landowners, and then you get to the wealthy, right? And this is the way she's stratified the world and, and, and views like th these are the good people, these are the really terrible, trashy people. Flannery O'Connor left thoughts in the story Revelation. So we get to hear her mental conversations. And again, I told you, she is a Christian and she's sitting here like giving thanks to God that she's not like these trashy people. I, I probably have done this before. You probably have too, if you were willing to be. Not like these people. There's a teen girl there who's annoyed with her for some reason. She doesn't know why. But she keeps looking at her, staring at her, making faces. She can't stand this woman, Ruby Turpin, for some reason. She's reading a book. After some time, as we hear Ruby Turpin talking in her mind about how, how good she is with somebody who's in a similar social class to her and talking about how much better she is than these people and that, this girl, this teenage girl, finally whips that book at her and hits her square in the head. Boom. And then next thing you know, she's on top of her choking her. Okay, so this little guy told you this is a gritty story, all right? Um, so next, she's, she's, right, they peel her off and the girl screams at her and she says, she says, you old warthog, go back to hell where you came from. And she's a hog farmer, right? So, the, I mean, she, this is like the, the most insulting thing possible. Uh, <laughs> Ruby Turpin is on the rest of the story. She goes back to her farm She's out with the pigs, and she is undone by this accusation because she has she thinks she's a socially nice, clean person who's been like good to people. But on the inside, she is like the Pharisees, right? Jesus said, "You're like whitewashed tombs, and on the dead on the inside are just dead men." And she's having this conversation with God as she's washing the pigs off, and she and she says she says to God, "Why would you, why would you bring that accusation against me?" I'm a Christian. Like, why would, why would you send that message to me that I'm a warthog from hell? And then 
looks at God and she says, who do you think you are? And now you realize that Ruby Turpin really sees herself as the judge of the world. Let me read an extend, a little bit of an extended quote because this next scene happens like right at the end of the story and you begin to get a picture, a really, a really powerful picture. So after, at last, Ruby lifted her head and there was only a purple streak in the sky cutting across the field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast image extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And get this, upon it were a vast horde of souls that were tumbling toward heaven. And there were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives. And of the very black people that she despised in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. Do you see what she's seeing? She's seeing this parade of all the people that she despised on their way to heaven and they are rejoicing. And then the, the stunning part and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior, and they alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. Now, thank God that they're still in the parade, but they're behind. They're behind those who were the last in this life. The first will be last, Jesus said, and the last will be first. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. How do ourselves, Christians? How do you see yourself? That's, gonna, that's, that's really important for us. If we're going to go be light to this world, we, it starts by seeing ourselves as broken. But it doesn't just stay right there. It does for just the fifth thing. That if we believed we were a church for broken people, we would be both humble and confident. I like how... Pastor Tim Keller, he said it. He said, he said, look, look, folks, cheer up. You're all worse than you, you could have ever imagined. <laughs> you are. I am. I'm like way more as I get older. Again, I just am more broken and more sinful than I thought I was. He says, so cheer up. You're worse. But, but cheer up. Cheer up because you're more loved than you could have ever imagined. How loved? so much so that God would send his son down to this earth. He would send him into the wilderness to face the temptations, to be pushed, to be almost broken. And then on the cross, he is broken for your sins. So how, how broken are you? A lot. How loved are you? Way more than you probably will ever figure out. Way more than you ever know. And so the writer of Hebrews says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Sinner, broken sinner, righteous person who you think you got it together and you're just maybe now starting to figure out how many 
really are. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're broken, but Jesus loves broken. He makes all the difference for us. So living word, I'm talking about to you as individuals and to us as a church. This is the church who we aspire to be. A church that can admit that we are all broken and desperately in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. If we'll do that, this will be a, become a church that's very welcoming for sinners, that's very honest about our own struggles, that patient and supportive of, of one another, that, yeah, is a little messy. It's a lot messy, actually. There's a lot of people here. Where it's a lot of mess. Mostly messy, but we're humble. <laughs> We're humble because we know who we are, but we're so, so confident because we know who Jesus is. Don't you know who Jesus is? Are you thankful for his grace? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you that you welcome broken people. Me, rebels like me, sinners like us. So church, as we, as we come and sing, as, as we've been doing, and we're just making a habit, there are people here who are available to pray with you. You're broken, you need prayer, you need help, whatever it is. We're gonna worship, we're gonna sing. However you need prayer, please feel free to make use of it. They'll be here and they'll be here after the service as well. But let's come to God as broken people who need His grace.